Hi folks, I'm Alan Wharton. This is Cutting Through the Matrix on February the 9th, 2011. For newcomers, I advise you to look into CuttingThroughTheMatrix.com and help yourself to the hundreds of audios which are there for download for free. And hopefully I've helped you once you've read, you've listened to a lot of them. Hopefully I've helped you to understand the big picture of the way the world is really run and not the way it's projected by the propaganda media. And the governments themselves, of course, who work with hand in hand with them. The media is an arm of government. It's an essential arm of creating a particular type of reality for what they call stable government or governance now is, is called. And remember, too, that you're in an audience that bring me to you, so you can help to keep me going by purchasing the books and the discs I have for sale at CuttingThroughTheMatrix.com. You'll find that you can um, order different ways from the U.S. to Canada. You can use a personal check. You can use an international postal money order. You can use um, cash. You can also uh, use PayPal. Use the donation button and follow it up by an email with your name and address in order and I'll get it out to you. Across the rest of the world, you've got Western Union for direct wire transfer. Cheaper still, I think, is MoneyGram, which also gives you the option of wiring and um, a, a check which they can give you to send to post from your side. That takes about seven days to get here, but it's cheaper still. And you can send cash and PayPal again for use a donation button and followed up by an email with your order on it, name, address, and order, and I'll get it out to you. As I say, I try to tie the ends together because really we're living in an amazing system of chronology. Chronology is the art of fooling most of the people most of the time, and it's, a, it's been a very old art, perfected, of course, over centuries and centuries, and more so ever since uh, they gave us the electronic uh, medium to convey through all information, lots of data, generally misleading or irrelevant or trivial. And the idea is to shield themselves with an overload of data, shield themselves as to what they're really up to. That's those in control. Because there truly is an elite. There's always been an elite. And they call themselves the dominant minority. They believe it's their rightful place to run the world, shape the world, uh, tie it in knots or untie it at, at will, and unite it all when it suits them as well. Because, after all, power is a very potent force for those who crave it. And those who get up to power truly crave it. It's not something they want to do to help people, believe you me. They use all the usual terms to help the people, etc. But that does not exist in, in reality. Those who seek power are generally psychopathic types in themselves. If they go into business, they're often successful because they're incredibly cunning and ruthless and they claw their way up to the top. Uh, it's the same in politics that attracts that type into them because in politics, you see, that's the biggest bank of all. If you get into government, you have the whole honey pot of the taxpayer to play with and that's where the big funding from, where big projects comes from, tax funding. That's why 
you can't see your politicians, but there are streets of houses around all your main governmental buildings where lobbyists live, and they can see them any time they want. They all know each other on a first-name basis, and that's how it really is for their benefit. In fact, government now exists, and that should be evident to all. The rest of it is just placating the public, keeping them in a, in a, a, a constant state of anxiety through ruination of finances, poverty, war, uh, terrorism, and all the other things you can think of that generally make the public turn towards government for protection. And under those circumstances, we give up our rights and we tend to go along with the nonsense. Back with more after this. Hi folks, we're back, cutting through the matrix and getting into some reality behind all the nonsense and there's so much nonsense out there really uh, there's not a spin that, that uh, isn't attached to every story that comes out from the top uh, all the way down, it's parted all the way down to the bottom level it's always a spin to mislead uh, really what the people are really doing or what they're really after or who's really behind something and what's the ultimate goal, what's the real reason as they say it's, it's like, I think it was um, the advisor, it was Mandel House, in fact, an advisor to President Wilson, and of course a member of the, the group that became known as a Council on Foreign Relations eventually, when it was called the Milner Group, but he helped push through uh, the, the work for the Federal Reserve to be set up and so on. And he also said, whatever government does, is, there's always a good reason, and then there's a real reason, and that was parted by other people after him uh, for a long time, a very popular saying, which is true. There's always a good reason for the public to be told, and there's always, and then there's a real reason. Now, we live, again, run in a system by a dominant minority, same in every country, and really what it boils down to is the gang. It's the gang, the Darwinian gang, that believe they're, they've, they've proven their right to be up there by accumulating wealth over a few centuries, um, having their wives selected for them because it's the offspring they're after. They really do believe in Darwinistic theories and the, the whole idea of favored races, and they believe they are the favored race. And they run the world, basically, in every country. It's the same old story. And, of course, they've got Japanese ones in there, too. They've got Chinese ones in there as well. Anyone who's made the grade and had held on to their wealth and their fortune and their power for a long time through generations uh, is worthy to, to be admitted, you see. Those who suddenly make it rich and then it's squandered by their offspring, they don't make the grade. And that's one of the testing, uh, the, litmus, the litmus test for it, really. So we're conned at the very bottom level because, you see, we are just the workers. And some, even between parties, political parties, they're allowed a certain amount of competition, as Carl Quigley said. But as long as the leaders are always members of the same organization, which is the Council on Foreign Relations, according to Quigley, it doesn't really matter what the rest of them do. They're allowed competition in the lower ranks to get up there. And, of course, they're pretty vicious with each other on the way up. But all they're really doing is fighting over who owns the right to tax the public and, and meet the lobbyists and uh, make the acquaintances of a lobbyist. And then once they leave politics, they work on the lobbyists' behalf and they rake in millions and millions for themselves. That's the reality of the world we truly live in. Now, 
I've often mentioned about groups and committees and how this whole idea of committees and groups came out of the British Foreign Office, as they called it, or the, the, the Home Office, they called it, at one time where diplomats were trained and sent abroad for their empire. And then they set up the Milner Group, which joined with the Rhodes Foundation and became the Royal Institute for International Affairs or Council on Foreign Relations. They were the ones famous for setting up committees Committees, and they always they used to just have a committee of 10 or a committee of 12 or 20. How many were on it was the committee? And they knew what it was really all about, the inside uh, story. They'd know what it was really all about. No one else would really know what they're there for, or they'd be given a lie, in fact. The G20 is such a committee, in fact. Uh, of course, the G20, no one, no, no country uh, was asked by any prime minister or president if they wanted um, their, their so-called elected leaders to help uh, join or join or form a committee uh, where you have an international gang of people deciding what happens to you at home and your laws and your tax cash. No one, no, that's, that's not democratic, of course, by any means at all. But these committees are not democratic and were not run by any form of true democracy anywhere. Now, one of the committees that, that does this is called, now called the European Council of 14, I think they call it, or, or it's either 13 or 14. They used to call it the Council of 12 Wise Men. This is the official name that they had. I'll put three links up tonight on them. Uh, this secretive committee are the ones who supposedly uh, helped shape the whole policies for the next 30 to 40 years for the whole of Europe via this super-Soviet parliament that they have there that runs all of the the ex-European nation states. So I'll put those up for you to peruse and and you, you can see how these committees actually work. And remember too, there's always an outer one for the public to be given and the reports and there's an inner one for the inner party members, just exactly as George Orwell talks about. Now, I mentioned yesterday how the, the American Constitution is pulled out and dusted off when politicians want to use it for globalism or whatever. And then, of course, it's trashed when, when the, the public um, try to use it on their behalf, their own behalf, how, how it's trashed and run around, uh, rings run around it by politicians and lawyers, because they're all lawyers now, of course, and how it's useful when, it, when they want it, as they say. And they always use this term of democracy, too, that Wilson started that up in, in America, he was told to start using America as a democracy, not a republic, and you'll find that in all of his old speeches that were written, to him, written for him by Mandel House and others. But they copy Britain. Britain, of course, is supposed to be the home of democracy, where the great con game was born. And because of that, they claim they had less revolutions afterwards, because the public think the government is actually theirs. That actually misled into thinking it's theirs instead of the government being there to make sure that those elite who own everything will own more uh, during their terms in office as governments. But here's an example of how the, the class system is so perfectly still up there and doing very well. Actually, more, more so than ever, because they're on a roll now. They truly feel there's nothing to lose by going back to their old pomposity. And an arrogance. And this article says bus drivers and waitresses, uh, those sorts of people aren't important, claims the conservative uh, lord. You know, he's a lord, I think. 
And a lord is basically a senator in the British government, uh, although the government now is a, a province of the European supergovernment. It says, bus drivers, waitresses, and other people are in unimportant jobs are not fit to sit in judgment on the business interests of former ministers as politicians, a senior government advisor said today, uh, yesterday. Tory peer, that's Conservative Lord Lang, said ordinary people were not qualified to judge whether former ministers such as Lord Mandelson, Mandelson really occupied the same position that his father did, and um, actually they've got a lot in common with other ones there too, uh, and across the Russian area as well. However, it says it should be allowed to t- take well-paid jobs in the private sector. Lord Lang's the chairman of the advisory committee, another committee on business appointments. It's another kind of lobbying thing. They, they, they take cash for getting uh, lobbyists in to see the right people, which vets the jobs of former ministers, defended the establishment of makeup and makeup of his committee, which comprises of four peers. That's somebody who's knighted two knights and a dame. That's nothing like a dame, eh? Anyway, he says, um, he told MPs he might be prepared to accept a lay member onto his committee. But he added, I would hope, however, it would be a lay member who had experience and proven success in a relatively important profession or trade, somebody who achieved distinction rather than a waitress or a bus driver. His comments angered members of the Commons Public Administration Committee, which is investigating the revolving door between Whitehall and big business. It's always been that way. The whole empire was about that. Anyway, anyway, Labour MP Paul Flynn revealed that he had worked as a bus driver in the past and said to Lord Lang, speaking as a bus driver of long standing who married a waitress, could you explain why neither I nor my wife have any contribution to make to your committee? Lord Lang, a former trade secretary who now has extensive business interests, they, they go in there to fill their pockets with the taxpayers' money. It said a committee of people who knew nothing at all about the issues involved would produce the wrong results. The right results is called graft. You know, you know, you know who, who you pay off. He also warned that ordinary people might be cowed, you know, being little, you know, servile types, they might be cowed by the prospect of dealing with his, the former ministers and senior civil servants whose job applications the committee considers. But uh, Tory MP Robert Halfen suggested the existing arrangement was too cosy. He told Lord Lang, it does look like the establishment running your committee. Well, of course it's the establishment. The whole British system is run on the establishment or the dominant minority. So it says here, Liberal Democrat MP Greg Mulholland said there's a fundamental problem with the whole business of how the committee is appointed, which means that as things stand, there's little chance of getting public confidence in the system. Well, you just need more propaganda, that's my advice to them, and, and give them a big lie about it and tell them how wonderful it will be for the country, for the greater good, and all that stuff. The usual propaganda generally works, and the public go back to sleep if they ever wake up at all. But this is how the world really is. That's how it really is. And that's how they really talk amongst each other at the top. Same in the U.S., same in Canada, same everywhere else. Because you went to the wrong schools, you didn't get brought up with families in the know, and you were not told how things really do work. I mentioned about uh, the kind of uh, sums that are given out by governments to uh, the elite and corporations yesterday, it's called corporate welfare. Big cash grants are given out all the time. Happens in Canada too, uh, to, to big companies, especially involved with the military contracts. They always claim that they're failing and there's a big cash injection and everything's quiet for another two or three years. But here's one here. And I mentioned the Queen before, how her, 
her advisors and her her money men, and she does have her own particular accountants, try to heat or get money for heating the palaces by using money that was designated for the poor people of Britain who are freezing to death right now. And uh, under the poverty laws, you try to use that to get cash back. These people don't like spending their own cash. You understand that's how you get poor is by spending your own cash. They don't like taking cash in from the public, but they don't like putting cash out. This article here goes back to 2005, and no doubt it's been ongoing ever since. You see, they love this European Union, this monstrosity that collects taxes from billions of people across the whole of Europe. What, what a cash cow that one is, isn't it? And then they go in about cash grants being given back out. Let's see where the cash grants go after I come back from this break. Hi folks, we're back, cutting through the matrix, reading an article about uh, the Queen's subsidies that she gets from the, the EU Union, this new super parliament that taxes all the countries and then hands money out, supposedly back to the public, but in actuality it goes back to big corporations and people like the Queen. And the Queen, you see, has lots and lots of hundreds of little farms across the countries, including Britain too, and they have tenant farmers, they're inter-hereditary basically, these farmers, been there for about the 1700s, as was Prince Charles, and they get paid peanuts, they've even had scandals how much they pay them, 1930s wages, so that the Queen and Charles and all the rest of them, at the top there, all their hundreds of cousins and that, can have good food, organically grown food and so on. Anyway, it says here, Here's the handouts that the Queen got since two, in 2005. It's ongoing, this thing, mind you, probably more now. The Queen has received more than £750,000 sterling in farming subsidies funded by taxpayers over the past two years that emerged yesterday. Prince Charles has been given nearly £215,000 sterling. That's not bad, Egypt, just for having a farm, a few farms and stuff and fields to grow the organic stuff for the cattle to eat. Revelations came in new figures released under the Freedom of Information Act on EU handouts to some of Britain's wealthiest landowners. The Queen's money, paid through the Common Agricultural Policy, went to Sangrium Farms on her privately owned Norfolk estate. Uh, Charles's cash went to the Duchy of Cornwall, which made a profit of almost um, £10 million sterling in 2003. You see, they really need these handouts, you understand? It's vital to get these handouts because otherwise they might spend their own cash. But this is the, the corruption we live in. We take it for granted and we're supposed to think, um, to be proud and, and be nationalistic about your, the place you're born as they globalize it all. And it's for their own good they're globalizing it because, as I say, they don't have to just tax people of Britain. They're getting tax money back, much more tax money back from the whole of the EU uh, system. That's what it's for. Same with these lords who push through all the bills for the tax to, the taxpayers to fund the big wind farms and solar farms, and then they give them get, they get the contracts put on their own lands, and they rake in all the cash just for them sitting there. It's a great deal, I'll tell you, it's a win-win situation. But for the general public, of course, we're supposed to sit at the bottom and moo, just moo and uh, bay away there. That's what we do. The virtual world 
is, of course, getting pushed on the youngsters. And I used to wonder, really, why is this getting pushed so much where you live inside a cartoon, basically, and uh, how they try to make it exciting to the children who technically are powerless, and that's why they give them all these choices of bodies and what they want to be in a virtual world, which will never be in the real world where they have no power at all, in actual fact. But I also thought, too, that this is the next step in controlling uh, a general public because when they're in a virtual world, and they've already proven this in some countries like South Korea, uh, eventually the, the real world gets mixed up with the virtual world, but they're more apt to accept more heavy taxation, more corruption at the top, uh, as long as they can escape into their fantasy world. And I think that's all part of it. And I remember on the THX movie uh, that was put out years ago, the big blockbuster that was about the future where people were raised as slaves, basically, in a, a kind of class-type system and program for your job. They even had uh, virtual priests to take confessions on televisions. Well, here's the Catholic Church in the paper here, Tech Radar. Catholic Church approves the iPhone virtual confession application. This is personal examination of conscience for each user. Um, the Catholic Church is edging further in the 21st century after giving a nod of approval to an iPhone application which guides its followers through confessing their sins. A Roman Catholic app is designed to help users understand their earthly sins and offers a personal conscience profile based on their age, sex, job, and marital status. That which costs £1.19 is particularly aimed at those who have not confessed to a priest in a while and hopes to prepare them to once again enter the box. As with partaking in virtual confession, believers can choose from a list of sins or add their own. I wonder if you make up ones as well. While choosing from seven different acts of contrition, more importantly, it supports the iPhone's retina display. <laughs> so uh, you can guarantee the NSA is going to be in there too to listen to all the confessions. A spokesman uh, for the Catholic Bishops' Conference in England and Wales told BBC News the app was a useful tool to help people prepare for the sacrament of reconciliation. The church believes in embracing new technology, and this creative app will hopefully help people make a good confession. God, the cops will be using it too, won't they? It's thought to be the first time the church has approved an app, which is part of the Pope's drive for Catholics to make good use of their presence in the digital world. Uh, whatever future thinking concepts might be next, approval for contraception, embracing same-sex relationships, the sky's the limit. Well, I think they've already done the latter uh, pretty, pretty well, and contraception to this Pope's given the go-ahead, so... He's a trendy Pope indeed, it seems, and he's trying to keep up with the times. He's more of a politician, mind you, as many others have said before you he was elected. But that's the, the world they're going into, and um, it's, it's quite amazing how, as I say, the virtual world affects people. They forget, they forget they're giving out data, uh, and we've already been told through every medium possible uh, that the NSA and all government agencies have access to this stuff and are using it and are collecting it. They forget all that once they're inside it. Quite something, eh? And there's an article here. It says um, children, uh, the youngsters who prefer their virtual lives to the real world. That's exactly what I'm saying. See, the more tough you make it to be when the prospects of work or at least any meaningful work are being diminished, they want to escape into a virtual world that's great for politicians for control. Back with more after this.
You're listening to the Republic Broadcasting Network. Because you can handle the truth. Hi folks, we're back and this is Cutting Through the Matrix talking about the virtual world and uh, how they're doing these studies which they already have done before and they know darn well what's going on. It says generation net youngsters who prefer their virtual lives to the real world then they're often happier, it says, with their online lives than they are with reality or surveys revealed. As I say, and the worse things get too, the more standards that's going to be true. Pure escapism. Before it was just plain drugs, you know, that's how people dissolved out on drugs when things were really bad and they felt they we're living in a nihilistic system, which is nihilistic if you're at the bottom of the heap. And uh, now, of course, you can just escape and dress up and be who you want to be, and lots of them do, all kinds of creatures. Anyway, it says they say they, they can be exactly who they want to be, and as soon as something is of no fun, they simply hit the quit button, and that's them out of it. also shows that despite concerns about online safety, one in eight young people is in contact with strangers when on the web and often lies about their appearance, age, and background. Well, so do pretty well all the rest of them too, I imagine. Researchers for children's charity Kidscape assessed the online activities and uh, did this assessment and so on. And they found that it, uh, children from 11 to 18 uh, from across the UK found that 45% said they were sometimes happier online than in their real lives. So it's a, that's why it's called uh, Kidscape, I guess. It's an escape. And where else can they go? Eh? Well, that become more nihilistic in real life. But again, it trains them too to blur the distinctions between their their virtual uh, cartoon existence. That's why I call it cartoon existence, and uh, the real life too. In South Korea, some games got so bad there uh, that the youngsters were using their name, uh, their game names, and going on the streets and, and gangs and fighting with other gangs that they were fighting in the, this virtual world with real knives. You know, actually doing it. So it does have an effect, and I'm sure that will be put to good use by the authorities at the right time, because everything's used. Now, I've mentioned before how nothing happens spontaneously on the world stage, and how the big colour organisations, as they call these NGOs by the big foundations funding, uh, George Soros and all these boys, Rockefellers, who fund them to go over to countries and cause riots, uh, they've already got their, all their countries listed as who they want to overthrow. And you must go back even to the American Century, the new American Century group, who said they wanted to take out Afghanistan, Iraq, and then um, Iran, and then Syria. And it was the same one, of course, that uh, Israel wanted. The same list, of course, was identical with Israel's. But here's an article here, and it goes back um, sometime. It says, Positive Change is Coming. The first international development conference of Syria, 2010, organized by the Syria Trust for Development in January 2010, included open and engaging discussions about the role of civil society in development. Important announcements were made suggesting that positive change, again, that's what they're causing it, calling it positive change, is on the way for the NGO sector in Syria. Uh, the First Lady of Syria, Asma al-Assad, indicated that a new NGO law is nearing completion, which will represent a fundamental change in the way the sector is regulated and pave the way for a more enabling environment for civil society organizations. Abdullah Dardari, 
Deputy Prime Minister for Economic Affairs, suggested that civil society will fill a vital space in the new social market economy as the public sector retracts from some domains that are not easily occupied by the private sector. So in other words, NGOs, the same communitarianism stuff idea is, is really what's to come out of all of this. Same in Egypt too, by the way. The do- democracy is a sham. It's just a pure sham uh, for the big boys who already uh, rule most of the world. That's all it is. And I hope folk really do understand that. And we find, too, that the U.S. is going to stay in Iraq. Uh, I mentioned this a few nights ago, but I didn't read it to you. It says, um, U.S. Ambassador to Iraq James Jeffrey said on Friday that more U.S. military forces may be needed to counter what he calls threats to Iraq's stability, and they will remain in 2012. The prospects of a longer U.S. military stay in Iraq contradict the clauses of a 2008 agreement between Baghdad and Washington. The agreement established that U.S. combat forces would withdraw from Iraq cities by June 30, 2009, and that all U.S. forces would be completely out of Iraq by December 31, 2011. The Iraqi government, as a puppet government, of course, initially intended to hold a popular vote in the agreement, but later succumbed to U.S. blue tactics and accepted the agreement. It's not really blue tactics, that's a way of saving, saving face, rather than say that they have no popular uh, backing from the, the public. They know they're a, pu- a puppet government, really. That's really what it is. It says, since the U.S.-led invasion of Iraq in March 2003, more than 1,300,000 people have been killed in Iraq, 4.7 million displaced, 5 million children orphaned, nearly half of the country's children, and the health status has deteriorated a level not seen seen since the 1950s. And that's what plunder and looting is is all about, really. We also have Donald Rumsfeld, who, of course, had a book uh, ghostwritten for him. They all have ghostwriters. Hard to catch these guys, they're kind of wispy, but um, uh, they, they basically take little statements from these people's past and little statements from the present, and then they write a book about them. And it's going to be in a glowing manner in some way or another. As same as old kings, they did hire the historians to write glowing reports about how wonderful the rain had been. Or off with your head. Donald Rumsfeld, former U.S. Defense Secretary, has no regrets about Iraq and Afghanistan. Exactly the same thing that Blair said when he was on. And I've read that article from the media from Britain before. So as he says, so anyway... Former Defense Secretary Donald Rumsfeld has been given his first TV interview since leaving office, defiantly stating he has no regrets about his leadership of the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. You'll never meet a psychopath who ever has a qualm or regret about anything. They just don't exist. They must always justify and rationalize their ego. However, he did use the opportunity to criticize former colleagues, notably National Security Advisor Condoleezza Rice, and Secretary of State Colin Powell, who worked alongside him following the terror attacks of 9-11. In other words, the, I know with Powell, uh, Powell looked like an absolute sap when he sat and lied and lied about the weapons of mass destruction with these fuzzy photographs. He knew darn well he was lying to the public, and it showed. And so if he was really a good guy, he would not have let it show like that. It wouldn't have happened. So anyway, here's the book out, and um, he's glad to see, too, that um, Obama's using the exact same policy as was drafted up by the Bush administration, because, you see, there are no differences. The, the establishment rules, regardless of the puppet they put in front of the public, and that's just the way it is. Just the way it is. Now, in Israel, I've got to laugh at Israel, because, uh, and that's a hard thing to do, believe me, sometimes dangerous, but... But uh, 
the army chief, and he's been in the paper so many times to do with the Gaza Strip and so on. Uh, it says army chief uh, Akanazi. I mean, how could you get a name like Ashkenazi? Ashkenazi is the Ashkenazi Jew, the term used by supposedly for the European, Polish, uh, and Russian Jews. Ashkenazi. It's the last part that gets me, the Nazi part. I mean, you couldn't make this stuff up. And this guy is, was a leader for the army there. And no one bothers to explain it. I mean, it kind of means the head. You know, that's what it really means, the head, the Nazi. Uh, same with a new moon, it's the Nazi, they call it too. But um, you can't make this stuff up. What a coincidence all down through history. And then their, their biggest foe in World War II were the Nazis. I mean, I think I'd change the name or something. But anyway, Army Chief Ashkenazi says, prepare for all-out war. He's doing a rah-rah, you know, leaving job as he, as he quits, you see. And it says here, given recent changes in the Middle East, Israel must prepare for a battle in several theaters. Uh, outgoing IDF Chief of Staff uh, Gabi Ashkenazi said Monday at the Herzliya uh, conference, the connection between the different players requires us to contend with more than one theater, he says. The radical camp in the Middle East is gaining strength. This is a rah-rah champion thing, as I say. Ashkenazi warned, adding that the moderate camp among the traditional Arab leadership is weakening. He also made note of what he characterized as a fascinating phenomenon, whereby power is shifting to the people of the region thanks to online social networks. That's his NGOs and foundations. The army chief said that in the wake of the growing threat of radical Islam among Israel's neighbors, the defense budget would have to be boosted in the coming years. So he's giving the bad news as well. The main charge, uh, change faced by the army is a widening spectrum of threats, he said. Because of this spectrum, we must prepare for conventional war. It would be a mistake to prepare for non-conventional war or limited conflicts and then expect that overnight the forces will operate in an all-out war, he said. He also said that both Hamas and Hezbollah pose only a limited threat to Israel at this time. But he doesn't underestimate Hamas or Hezbollah, but they cannot, he says, take over the Negev or the Galilee, he says. So it's an outgoing thing. Then he praised the youth. They all do that you know, in all countries and nations. They always praise the youth because they're going to be the further ones to, to the next generation to keep the wars going and so on. And uh, and that's him out probably into some big business somewhere, as they do across the whole world, all these outgoing army generals. Probably in the weapons industry, no doubt. Now, there's also a good article here about food and food riots because... It isn't just a stock market that the food is on. It's really on something else. It's called the futures market. And the same guys that caused all the bubbles with speculation are the guys who deal with the futures markets. And um, this article here says uh, that all began to change in the aftermath of the Commodities Futures Modernization Act of 2000. This is when they changed the whole thing about food. Another legacy of the Clinton-Rubin summer regime. Of course, the whole basis of the arguments for commodities as a defensive hedge, you know, if you heard of hedge funds and so on, non-correlated to financial assets, went out the window the minute this legislation was passed. By definition, when managed money flows into an asset class that had previously been uncorrelated with other assets, that asset will naturally become correlated. Hence, by opening up the commodity complex to Wall Street via this legislation, Congress found another potential bubble for Wall Street. Naturally, this garnered huge profits for the investment banks, but ultimately collapsed along with everything else, leaving uh, your uh, average American poorer in the process as usual. So I'll put this up that it explains, as I say, what these these futures market and commodities markets actually are. They hedge on on the, the future prices of things, 
and they watch to see where if there's been um, a bad crop in some country and this and other. And it's all a betting game for, uh, that they make money off of. And so that's what's happening to the food prices as, as the sky rocket. Uh, and of course, they rake in the cash as well at very higher levels. Quite something, really. Also for Australia, it's his agenda for the 21st century. That's the United Nations Agenda 21. Uh, invades Australia. It says Australian leaders enforce Agenda 21, sustainable development by restricting private property use through policies like the Native Vegetation Act. Public-private partnerships with willing corporations, councils, developers and others are used to advance the agenda. As a result, Australian businesses are becoming nationalised and private property is being abolished. It says the vanguard implementation of Agenda 21 policies will pummel the Australian landscape Leaders eager to enforce Agenda 21 encourage public-private partnerships with willing corporations, developers and others. These alliances create nationalised businesses and erode private property ownership. And I'll put this link up tonight as well, and you can have a a gander, as they say, at that as as well. It's happening all over the world, the same con game. What public-private means is, as you see, generally the public have built up something through nationalised services, all your tax money built up, your your, your essential infrastructure, your fuel systems, your gas systems, all that kind of stuff that you use, roads and so on. And then they privatize it. They give it to their pals for peanuts. And under the public-private deal, uh, the private sector can take all the profits and the public are left to maintain it and pay for the cost of maintenance and all the rest of it. That's really what this con game's all really about under the, the, the Agenda 21. But they're also um, getting folk off the land because they live in these corridors alongside these main roads, apparently, you see. And that's the way they want. They want to end the urban sprawl. They want to get everyone into cities. And they want uh, the major cities to be alongside these big um, four, ten-lane highways, basically. And the rest will be corridors for the animals and for the wealthy elite to, to trot around and do their hunting and for the big corporations to go in and look for mineral rights or oil or anything else that they happen to find there. That's what it's really all about in a nutshell. Now, I'll also put up tonight the remarks by President Obama and Prime Minister Stephen Harper when they went to sign that uh, latest agreement for the integration of the border between Canada and the U.S. And again, it's been written, obviously, by there's this Maybe I had the same speechwriter. Why? So we're all sharing things. I'm sure one speechwriter wrote the, the the blurb that Obama gave and the blurb that Harper gave. Uh, save his cash, doesn't it? But anyway, Obama goes on, pleased to welcome his great friend and partner, Prime Minister Stephen Harper. At least he remembers his name because George Bush used to forget. Back to the White House to reaffirm uh, our extraordinary friendship and cooperation between the U.S. and Canada. Then they talk about what they accomplished and so on. Now. It says the U.S. and Canada are not simply allies, not simply neighbors. We are woven together like perhaps no other two countries in the world. We're bound together by societies, our economies, and by our families, which reminds me, my, well, it's true, they have families and relatives on both sides. My brother-in-law's birthday is today, and I've, call, I've called him, it says. And our many meetings together have come to value Stephen's candor and his focus on getting results, both when it comes to our two countries and to meeting global challenges. Now remember, too, I've already put up, and I've even played on the air, the first major meeting, 2005, where the Council on Foreign Relations hosted a show on CBC here, national television, and on Global as well here. 
and uh, said that they drafted up the whole thing for the integration scheme for the U.S., Canada, and Mexico. The CFR admitted they had drafted it up and presented it to Parliament to sign. So really, it's the CFR that's behind all of this. And these guys don't go down and discuss anything. They might have a game at golf or something or whatever else they do, but they actually sign something that the bureaucrats have been working on for the last few years. That That's how they always do it. Anyway, they've gone about... Um, the, the, the PR stuff for the public, again, the inner party, outer party stuff. We've got the outer party stuff here. So they want to increase trade and improve competitiveness and create jobs, yada, 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 and all that nonsense. And uh, they're going, and they're, sh- and they're more further integrating all the security systems. We're already sharing uh, the computers now with the FBI. For every citizen of, in Canada, the FBI, of course, can, can uh, look into any citizen in Canada. They can look into your bank accounts too, by the way. And um, uh, vice versa, for CSIS and the RCMP, uh, they're, they're already using the same characters at the border. They're integrating the border staff, actually. That's what they want to do, too. It also means that the U.S. police can, can come into Canada and, and go after anybody they want, and supposedly vice versa. But I don't think Canada will bother, but the U.S. probably will. Uh, so we are integrating. Now, I live through the, the integration of the European countries with prime ministers going over every year and signing further integration, as they called it, and closer ties. The same terminology was used. And here we are living through the same darn thing here. And so that you don't get all spooked and say, my God, we're losing our countries. That's how they did it in Europe, folks, because this is the agenda. As Karl Marx even brought it up in the 1840s. First a European Union, then a North American Union. And by the way, Obama's going off uh, next month to, to um, get the rest of them in South America to sign as well. That's why the, the Mexican president wasn't at this one. They want to give us a bit of a show and, and pretend they're not really doing the same thing as they've always done. So he's off to see the rest of them next month, and they'll sign it too. Quite something, eh? Try to make sense. You have to really think through what the, the, the rubbish they're giving you as news. Back with more after this break. Hi folks, this is Cutting Through the Matrix and... This last article here is about uh, the stock exchange because this is London Stock Exchange and Canada's TMX gain on takeover. London Stock Exchange Group PLC and TMX Group Inc. rallied after LAC agreed to buy the owner of the Toronto Stock Exchange for about $3.2 billion in stock. The shares paired gains after the New York Stock Exchange Euronext said its merger talks with Deutsche Börse AG. Uh, said it in its, in its major talks with Deutsche Börse. So they're all merging. The ownerships of these stock exchanges are all merging so that when they collapse at the next time, they can even screw us better than the last time, no doubt. More perfected. I'll take us all by surprise. All work together, you see. So quite amazing how all these stock exchanges are merging right now. Now there's a caller there that's Justin from Ontario. Are you there, Justin? Hello, Justin. Are you there? Hey, you mentioned the uh, Ashkenazi Jews. Uh, it reminded me of um, uh, McLean's magazine in here, in, here in Canada. I actually have a copy of from uh, 2005. Uh, they go into the next hundred years 
because it's the, the centennial of the magazine for the last 100 years, uh, they go into the next 100 years in which they mention the uh, transhumanist agenda and all this and such. And, mm-hmm. and uh, towards the end of the article, uh, or the whole, the whole magazine, the, the guy who wrote the, the article, he, he talks about um, how the Ashkenazi Jews are the, the smartest people on the earth and blah, 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 and it seems like a whole bunch of propaganda. Well, that came, up with, uh, that came up with the bell curve and Watson and so on, and you got to realize who Watson was because Watson also was um, um, related, to, actually was a descendant of the man who gave the Americans their education system. You'd look at his middle name, Dewey, and uh, it also came out with, they were trying to promote the whole thing of hereditary superiority and genetics and eugenics. And that's really why they put the bell curve out. And it really upset a lot of people because of the descending order of lesser types or lesser IQs. And uh, that's right, that they did put that out in that magazine back in 2005. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I would like to ask you about, uh, I, I picked up a book out of a second-hand store um, called uh, The New Unhappy Lords uh, by A.K. Chesterton. Mm-hmm. It's a pretty old book. I think it's from 65. And uh, he goes into, the, you know, the one-world government agenda, uh, U.N. atrocities in the Congo, uh, destruction of the British or British Empire. And, um, you know, and but then I, I did a little bit of research on the Internet, and, and he's painted as a, this this anti-Semite, fascist, uh, sort of Hitler sympathizer. And I, I'm just wondering if it's even worth reading this, the rest of it, or, you know, just take it with a grain of salt. I'll take it with a grain of salt. There's so much put out there to be misleading. Um, I mean, the, the British Empire isn't lost. It really, uh, uh, those who already owned the British Empire have simply moved on to their global agenda of global empire. Don't forget it was Britain that set up the United Nations. They funded the League of Nations because Britain's been run by one tiny group for, according to Carol Quigley, the Royal Institute of International Affairs since the late 1800s when it was called the Milner and Rhodes Group. So they've run the system. They've run the CFR in America and Canada. And that's why we're merging too, the CFR, the ones who draft up the merger for Canada. So this is a global agenda for the whole world. You can't, the best empire obviously is a global one. Uh, that's what they want. And, uh, it looks to me like they've got their wish. Um, there's no opposition really to it, uh, of any power, uh, means that is. And I can't see anything that's going to stop them. But they also want to bring in their modern utopia, uh, once they have it in place and dissuade us all from breeding all the lesser types, the ones that don't quite fit the bell curve. And that's really what they're about, too. They're, they're, they're dead serious about this. But thanks for calling. From Hamish Marcel from Ontario, Canada, good night, and may your God or your gods go with you.